Thank you to those who this morning noticed the, the jacket. Looks pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> Back when I was a, a school teacher, once a year, and all the students here and teachers would know, once a year there's photo day. Um, and everyone got to dress up a little bit for photo day because you had to look spick and span. So the fellas generally wore their usual garb, their shirt, tie and suit pants. And just for that day, they'd throw a jacket over the top. And all of a sudden, there was a bit of suave in the room. All the fellas were looking pretty good. People started to take notice. And even if only it was an appearance, because it is all about appearance, isn't it, on the outside? Even if it was all about appearance, there was a scent of extra professionalism in the air. Um, and yes, Nat, this is the new um, policy, uniform policy for pastors <laughs> at... Uh, um, well, at least that professionalism lasted for the 10 minutes or so it took to get 90 staff together for a photo and all smiling at the same time, and then the jackets came off, and um, it was back to normal. Uh, and that's what it is today, back to normal. Well, who knows? Last week we heard Paul telling us to put off a whole lot of stuff, didn't he? And, this way, and then again to put on a whole lot of stuff. Put on a jacket, and all of a sudden... And I, I said to John, it's a bit like love is the, um, above all these things, put on love. It's like the jacket that everyone sees on the outside. You might have heard the, the old proverb of the clothes doth maketh the man. Wear the right thing and you'll get anywhere. That's a proverb attributed to Mark Twain, but it actually goes well back before him, even to the Middle Ages, to a priest and theologian called Erasmus. But Mark Twain in his... Uh, short story, The Tsar's Soliloquy, back in 1905, he wrote this. One realises that without his clothes, a man would be nothing at all. That the clothes do not merely make the man, the clothes are the man. That without them, he is a cipher, a vacancy, a nobody, a nothing. There is no power without clothes make a good first impression or some kind of impression by what you're wearing, by your appearance. At least that's what the Proverbs meant to tell us and you'll go a long way. There's power in the clothes we wear or at least the appearance of power. But for Paul and for us, it's got to be more than just appearances, doesn't it? It's got to be more than just first impressions that matter. For us, it's not the clothes that maketh the man, it's Christ who has made us who we are. As we heard last week, we don't put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. We don't put on those things to become God's children. We don't put on these nice things on the outside to make it look like we are his beloved and holy ones. Paul tells us in verse 12 of Colossians 3, as God's chosen ones, as his holy and beloved ones, put on these things. It's because we are God's beloved children that we are to clothe ourselves and conduct ourselves in this new and living way in the freedom of Christ. Unlike the teachers at school on photo day, we're not simply to dress to impress or for appearances alone. We're to dress as those who have already been chosen and already been called. These are the clothes of God's beloved. These are the clothes which fit those who have been forgiven, redeemed, called, chosen and transferred into God's kingdom. 
And it's not the clothes which transform us from the outside in. The new clothes we're given and called to put on are fitting for those of us who have been transformed through faith in Christ from the inside out. Because as we hear this morning, not only are we given a new wardrobe to wear, the things to put on, we're actually given a new landlord. It's not just our outward appearance and actions which should change for those who are in Christ. This transformation has actually taken place on the inside, in our hearts. Christ has done a work internally. He's transformed us. Last week we heard, put on, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. No longer do we live under the tyranny of our old masters, sin, guilt, shame, or Satan and his accusations, or the opinions and judgments of others. Those things are not meant to rule us. They're not meant to determine our thoughts and actions anymore. They no longer have any say, or they're not meant to, in what we do, how we live, on how we furnish our new life in Christ. We have been freed from their dominion. Yes, they're still there. You'll still hear them. You'll still wrestle with them. But they no longer have dominion over you. They've actually been disarmed. That's what we heard back a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Christ on the cross has actually disarmed the rulers and powers, put them to open shame. And instead, we have a new landlord. We have a new ruler of our heart. And that, Paul tells us, is to be the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Despite the chaos and discontent in the world, despite the ongoing presence of sin in your lives and our propensity still to wander and our wrestle with all these things, it's the peace of Christ that is now to rule in our hearts, or at least that's what Paul is urging us, to have rule in our hearts. So what does it mean for us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? We so often think peace is something quiet, restful, the cessation of war, rest instead of unrest. And it is that, that would be peaceful. But it's more than that as well. Peace here is not passive. Here at least the peace of Christ actively rules or governs our hearts. Many of us will know well the verse from Philippians 4, after Paul tells us repeatedly to rejoice in the Lord. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. It's one of the themes Dave's already picked up in this passage today. Let your requests be made known to God. And he says, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus peace of God will guard actively what keeping watch protecting and guarding your heart and your mind and both there in Philippians and here in Colossians where it's not just guarding it's actually to rule in our hearts peace is far from passive isn't it it's active it's powerful and we are to let it rule in our hearts Paul's telling us here which means in my reading of it sometimes or at least maybe often Sadly, we let other things rule our hearts, don't we? Not the peace of Christ. Did you know that in every single one of his letters, Paul mentions peace? Every single one of his letters, Paul, even if it's just in his greeting, grace and peace to you, 
from God our Father with the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace was something, it was a constant truth in Paul's life. And it was a truth and a reality he wanted every believer to know. There's not too many words I reckon that Paul would have in every single one of his letters. Peace is one of them. Jesus told us that his peace is not the same as the world's peace. When he left this world physically to be with his Father in heaven, he had said he left his peace with his disciples. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, but do I give you peace? It's not a peace that's of this world, as in it's not the same peace that this world gives, but it's a peace that's over this world as he now reigns over this world. The New Testament tells us that the peace of Christ has to do with righteousness, with our being justified. Romans 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So at least something to do with this peace is our relationship with God, our having been reconciled, our forgiveness, the righteousness that's been purchased for us in Christ, that is ours in him, means we have peace with God. We're no longer enemies. We're no longer under his wrath. And the Old Testament puts peace and righteousness together as well. You heard it in that reading from Isaiah 32. And there might have been a few folk that squirmed in their seats. I didn't pick that reading because I thought we had a lot of complacent women here at Coro. But if it did convict you as that, then, well, thank the Lord for his word. Because it's quite poignant, isn't it? It's quite pointed. If you're being complacent, watch out, because things are going to happen that are going to shake you. But did you hear the until in that passage? (laughs) Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, then justice will dwell in the wilderness. Because peace comes not when everything's comfortable and we can be complacent and cruisy, because that can all change in a moment, can't it? One season in Isaiah and it's gone. One missile, our peace is gone. One harsh word and the peace of your heart can come to ruin. Now the coming of peace has to do with the outpouring of the Spirit of God and with righteousness and justice. And that Old Testament promise has been fulfilled in Christ and at Pentecost, after Christ's death and resurrection and his ascension as Lord to the Father's right hand. Interesting days to be speaking about peace, isn't it? Three weeks ago or so, the peace of Ukraine. Disturbed, interrupted, destroyed. As another ruler invaded the nation. When will they experience peace again? When the war's over? John Farnham sang a great song with that, didn't he? My brother was a big John Farnham fan. But even then, when the war's over, peace will only come when there's a ruler who's both victorious over their enemies and benevolent towards his people. And one who's able, has got all the provisions to be able to sustain them and restore a land. But what about the peace of the mind, the peace of the heart that's needed after something like that? All the money and uh, infrastructure and restoring the property, that's not going to be enough, is it? What about the peace of heart that we all long for? 
peace in our conscience, peace from the passions that wage war within us? Is there a victorious, just and benevolent ruler who can grant his people that peace? Well, I want to tell you this morning there is, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's nailed our record of debt, all of our sin on the cross. He's purchased our redemption. He's taken us out of slavery, brought us into a new kingdom. He's disarmed every rule and authority and power, put them to open shame, and he's established and promised us a new creation, a new heaven and new earth, where there will be no lack of peace. And he did all of that on the cross. And in his resurrection and ascension. And it's there in Christ Jesus that justice and righteousness were put on full display. The one who is both just and the one who justifies. On the cross, the empty tomb and at the Father's right hand there, righteousness reigns. And what did Isaiah tell us? The effect of righteousness will be peace. It's the only place we'll find peace. It's the only way we'll find peace. The result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Can you see that in Christ? Do you hear that? Do we really know, as Jesus said, the things that make for peace? Can we see it was the suffering and death of Christ that had to take place in order for us to be granted peace? He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And is it that peace that rules in your heart? I don't know about you, but most of us like to have some level of control in our lives, don't we? Some of us like to have total control of everything and everything around us. But to whatever degree that is true for us, then to that degree there is no room for the Lordship of Christ. There's no room for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts when if we are trying to rule them ourselves. If we don't know and trust that Jesus is Lord, then we will have no peace. Instead, we'll have fear, we'll live in fear and we'll try to gain control ourselves of anything and everything that seems out of control anything that interrupts our sense of peace that's not to our liking and we'll never rest we'll be forever restless because if it's not Jesus who is Lord and not his peace that rules in our hearts then we have to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders or else someone else is Lord and ruling in our hearts And let me tell you, anyone other than Jesus Christ, even yourself, will not be as mighty or as benevolent or as gracious as the Lord Jesus. This peace of Christ is nothing less than the kingdom of God reigning in your heart. Having the peace of Christ rule in our heart is to have the kingdom of God come near to us personally for Christ to be sovereign in our hearts and over our lives. It's to have the Prince of Peace. That's what he's called, isn't he? To have him reign in our hearts and we're told his government and peace will increase and will never end. Later in Isaiah, it's the one who says to Zion, your God reigns. 
who publishes peace. Peace has to do with the reign of Christ, God's sovereign reign and Christ's loving rule. And so when Paul exhorts us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, he's telling us Jesus is Lord. That's what Colossians has been saying all since chapter 1. And that we should and we can trust him as Lord so we can find rest for our souls in that, in him. And we can enjoy the peace that passes understanding. The peace which comes from his victory and from his vicarious sacrifice for us on the cross. That there is one we know who does rule our lives, the nations and every principality and power. And he rules mightily with grace and with benevolence. And I don't know about you, but isn't that a relief? I don't know if you remember a sermon a few weeks ago. I was going to look it up and and quote it. Um, But I was saying when I was talking about the second part of Colossians, where it's Jesus is Lord, that Christ's supremacy, things are happening in the world, but it's okay. Jesus is Lord. You've lost a loved one. It's okay. Jesus is Lord. All those things, if you can remember that message. That's what Paul's saying here. That's where the peace of Christ, when it rules in our hearts, it's okay. A lot of things are not okay, but it is okay because Jesus is Lord. We can be at peace. So tell me, or don't tell me, consider this. What is it that rules your heart each day? What is it that governs your heart? What influences and determines your decisions and actions day by day? Whose lordship rules your life? Chances are there's a whole heap of factors. You've got responsibilities, you've got priorities, you've got all the changes with the COVID and if you've got kids at school, you don't know whether they're meant to be at school or at church or able to go to sporting practice or anything else because every second day or more you're getting a notification that you're a classroom contact. Is that ruling your world? Fears and anxieties? Our kids, our job, our parents? Or maybe it's more internal, maybe it's greed. Maybe you need more money or more toys or more time. Or maybe it's the media or your social media. That's dictating you and your life, your thoughts. We might think sin still reigns in our bodies because of its constant presence in our lives. But it doesn't rule. If you're in Christ, sin no longer has dominion over you. It's present, still there, but it no longer has the final say. Christ does. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Jesus Christ does, and so we are to let him and his peace rule in our hearts, which actually is a wonderful not just a remedy for sin, it's a wonderful way to resist sin. To actually be able to say, no, Christ rule, I don't need to listen to that anymore. I listen to Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What difference would it make to your day tomorrow? Monday morning, getting ready for work, getting the kids ready for school. If we took this to heart, and started the day and the week with Christ and the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. I think it would change everything. might not change some of what we do, 
but it would change how we go about it and why, the reason behind what we do. No longer fear, but confidence, faith. No longer worry, but hope. No longer despair, but purpose. Let me give you a couple of examples, biblical ones. Earlier this term on Wednesday nights, we were finishing our time through Proverbs and I thought it would be remiss of us, we didn't go through every chapter and verse of Proverbs, but I did want to go through Proverbs 31 and look at the noble woman, the the excellent wife of Proverbs 31. One of the things I love about the description there is that this woman laughs at the time to come. She laughs at the time to come. How can that be? How can she not worry about the days to come, about what's around the corner? How can she be so sure and steady about things that she knows nothing about? So much so that she laughs at the unknown. She's not anxious, she's not frantic, nor is she ignorant or naive. She's a woman who is full of faith. She's a woman who fears the Lord. And in her faith and her reverent fear, that works out in her life, preparing for and providing for her household. And fellas, let me tell you, if that's not your wife, don't look to her and say, you better step up. Because if you were there on that Wednesday night, you would have heard her say, talk about the man that's in that Proverbs 31 chapter as well. It's a team effort for our families and married couples. This woman can laugh at tomorrow at what's to come, not even knowing what's around the corner because she knows who will be around the corner with her and that he is Lord. And what about someone like Stephen? Even as he was being stoned and they gnashed their teeth at him and held stones at him, he sees the Lord of glory. He sees him there at the Father's right hand. He knows Jesus is Lord and he's at peace even as the stones are being hurled at him. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and don't hold this sin against them. What a way to go, really. The peace of Christ ruling in someone's heart. I can still remember quite vividly, how many years ago, I won't even try to guess now, probably almost 30 years ago, that's a bit scary, a little bit less than that, my final year of teacher training, sitting under an educational psychology lecturer, who, to be honest, I don't think had stepped inside a classroom for a couple of decades. She was teaching us a strategy for how to deal with a classroom from hell, probably a bunch of year nines, giving her a hard time. She taught us just to stop for a moment, count to ten, take a few deep breaths and imagine all the stress leaving your body as you breathe out, And then imagine a warm blanket of peace and calm covering you like a layer of melted cheese. Seriously, she used the melted cheese image. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a classroom of wild year nines. I have, and there's barely a moment to count to three, let alone ten, and take some deep breaths and magically turn yourself into some cool collected cheese toasty. That's not the kind of peace Paul's talking about here. It really isn't. As helpful as it might be to stop and take a breath and think through what you're going to do next before you react, you need to do that in moments of high stress. 
But when Paul speaks about the peace of Christ, he's speaking about a relationship we have with God. We're his children, we're his beloved. We who were once enemies, now being reconciled. We're his chosen ones. And if he is for us, then who can be against us? We're talking about one who, back in chapter 1, the one who has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, it's not melted cheese which is going to help us feel any peace in a moment of high stress or in our lives today. It's the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrected lordship and ascended lordship at the right hand of the Father. And Paul is telling us it's that, it's him who should govern everything about our lives. Even next week as we're going to see how we live together as husband and wife and in our homes, in our families and in our workplace. Parents and children too. Christ is the rightful Lord. He's to be the landlord of our hearts. And so when anger steps up to the door of your heart and bangs loudly, saying, I want to get in and have my way, we can actually say, no, I'm going to let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. You have to stop and actually be deliberate about that sometimes, don't you? Take 10 seconds, deep breath, melt a chit. No. When lust or greed creep in ever so quietly and try to take the lead and determine your thoughts and your actions. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, the lordship of Christ and the peace that that brings. To this you are called, Paul says, in one body. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because up till now you've probably all been thinking, this is all for me. And it is, personally. But it's also corporate. This peace of Christ and the Lordship of Christ is to what we've all been called to, you, plural, in one body. Let the peace of Christ rule in our fellowship, in how we relate to one another, in how we worship together in one body. Which would have to mean, wouldn't it, that the same grace and love and forgiveness and ministry of reconciliation that we've received in Christ is then exercised among our sisters and brothers in Christ. That would be the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts together. And if our life is not that together, if the peace of Christ is not ruling our fellowship, well, then either Christ hasn't done his job, which I I know he has, or we're letting something else rule in our hearts together which means we're not letting the peace of Christ rule if we let bitterness and seething creep in and sit under the surface. Now, I know it sounds easy, and sometimes we talk about these things at home and the response I get is, yeah, that's easy to say, not so easy to do. It's all nice and theoretical and theological. And yeah, it is. Especially if you're prone to anxiety or lust or greed or anger or working with a class of hormone charge year nines. Sorry, year nines, you always get the hard deal, don't you? It's okay, we love you. But Paul's clear here. Having it easy to say and not so easy to do is no excuse for not doing it. Christ is Lord, there's no changing that. And we believe he is Lord. But whether we rest in that and whether we let him rule in our hearts is another issue. 
If we don't, there won't be a vacuum there in his place. Something else will come and take his place in our heart. Whether Christ's lordship gives us peace or not depends upon whether we look to and trust him as Lord. It's a matter of faith, working through love and obedience. And Paul knows it's not as easy to do as it is to say, which is why I think the next exhortation he gives is this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, together with our new landlord, the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, we also get a new tenant. Two, in fact, two housemates in our heart. We're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and we're to have thankfulness in our hearts always. Now, for some, that might sound quite crowded. Your heart's a little room and it's getting a bit... bit. Let me tell you, (laughs) when it's filled with the peace of Christ and thankfulness and the word of Christ, there's no room for any unwanted guests. It's a really good thing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you personally, but also, again, this is corporate. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, or use all, plural, richly, teaching and admonishing one another. In all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. The word of Christ is not meant to be a visitor in our church. He's not meant to be a guest in your heart. He's meant to dwell in there permanently and make his home there. He's meant to feel at home in our hearts. A couple of weeks ago, we were at my mum's place and chatting away and getting ready for lunch and I had my head in the pantry and grabbed something out, I think, and ate a biscuit or something and my daughter said to me, you can't do that, that's not yours, that's Nana's. I said, what do you mean, it's mine, this is my house. It's the house I grew up in. It just felt like home still. Do you know what I mean? Is that what the word of Christ is in your heart? It feels at home? Or does it feel like it's still on the edges and doesn't really belong? You invite it in every now and then. But it's not a permanent resident. How can you tell which it is? I actually think Paul gives us some clues. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's the outworking of that going to be? Well, you'll be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You'll be singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs and there'll be thankfulness in your heart. Having the word of Christ dwell in us richly means all of our interactions, all of our relationships with one another at home, in the church, at work will actually be influenced by the gospel. Christ will be on our lips, he'll be on our hearts. The things that we've put on, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another and love, they'll just be part of who we are. Singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Is there a song in your heart that speaks of Christ? Do you have a gospel earworm that echoes around in your heart and your head? proclaiming the goodness and grace of God when you need it most. I'm not saying you can't listen to other music, but what is it that rules in our hearts and what is it that dwells there as a permanent resident? I don't care if it's an old chorus, we've sung one today, an older hymn or a newer one, does something, do you have something in your heart and your mind that speaks the word of Christ to you, richly? As one wise pastor once said, make sure the songs you sing in church echo what you're preaching because in 20 years' time, people won't remember what you said in the pulpit but they will remember what they sang. 
So as the word of Christ dwells in us richly, it even is to work out in what we sing together. The songs we sing here at church are very much part of our teaching. It's didactic. means it teaches us. They're part of our care and our correction and comfort and our warning to one another. It raises an important point, a bit of a tangent for our main argument, but regards to worship and our music in worship, I've always said there's meant to be three dimensions. I remember reading a book years ago. There's a dimension of God to us. The songs we sing are meant to speak God's word to us. And they're also meant to be our words to God, giving thanks and praise to God in response to all that he's done for us in Christ. And we, here as well as in Ephesians, sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs to one another. There's a horizontal element of our singing and worship. And if there's a glut of any one of those three dimensions, we're going to be lacking in another one and maybe not teaching and encouraging and admonishing one another in life and love and worship. And then in all of that, in every dimension, not just of our singing, but of our life as worship, there's to be thanksgiving. Every verse, three verses, three times. And be thankful with thankfulness in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why do you think Paul is so on about thankfulness? He started the letter with a word of thanks, didn't he? For the Colossians, for their faith and their hope and love. Thankful for the redeeming and transferring work of God through his Son and for the Lordship of Christ. Why is Paul so much on about thankfulness? Because he knows that we haven't been given anything other than that which comes from God. Not one scrap of our salvation and of our life and of this peace that he's urging us to have rule in our hearts do we get for ourselves. It all comes to us as gift. And so we've got so much to give thanks for. When the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, when we let it, when the word of Christ dwells in us richly in our homes and in our hearts and our fellowship together, we will be filled with nothing but thankfulness. Now, Dave's already chosen that song, and I hadn't chosen it anyway. It would have been a fitting one. But we're going to put Paul's instruction into practice as we sing a psalm, actually, or hymn, or spiritual song to one another. May the peace of God be with you. We're going to stand and sing that now, but let me pray. Father, there is so much around us that tries to convince us that Christ is not Lord. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, we don't see everything in subjection to him. But you have revealed to us your son, Jesus Christ, at your right hand. Father, we know and trust that he has defeated his enemies, sin, death, Satan, every power and authority that he rules the nations. And this morning, Father, we've been encouraged to let him rule in our hearts and let the peace of his lordship rule in our lives. And so, Father, we pray we would hear that voice, that your word would dwell in us richly, not the voices of the world or the media or the evil one, but the voice of Christ that says peace 
Peace be with you. And my peace I leave with you. And may our hearts be filled with thankfulness as we rest and live not passively but actively in that guarding and governing peace of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.